So I'm calling this message a theology of window viewing because we need a theology on how to look through windows. Actually, it's more of a metaphor for uh, the fact that tradition is like a window. Tradition is something, and I'm talking about like Christian tradition. Tradition is something that is useful to look through and to see the vista, to see Christ, to see God. Um, But tradition fails and falters as soon as we become more obsessed with the window itself than viewing through the window. Make sense? You're not, you're not, the window is not there for you to look at the glass itself and to marvel at it and then to step back and say, I, you know what I think we need? We need some drapes on either side of the window and we need like, that's not what the window is there for. And, and when tradition begins to serve the purpose of itself, uh, that's when churches die and that's when Christians kind of just become those religious monotone zombies. Insert, you know, dead. I don't know. Um, traditions like a window. Now, some traditions are really tiny and they only look out at the neighbor's wall. Some traditions are massive and they look out on an ocean view or upon Yosemite, something glorious. Um, not all traditions are equal. Not all windows are equal. But the reason that we care about Christian tradition and the reason that we care about the Bible is because this is a window. Um, but as we are going to see, it is all too easy for the Christian to get obsessed about the window, to focus too much on the window, to overemphasize the window. Oh, there's a smudge. We really got to make it. No, now you touched it. Now we got to, and it's just continually working the window and just forgetting that it's there for another purpose. Does the window need to be clean? Well, if you want to see through it, yeah, you have to have it clean to serve its purpose. But there's a point when you become over fixated on the cleanliness of the glass. So the glass becomes everything and the view is forgotten because you're too microscopically looking at this. Thus, we need a theology on window viewing. And that's what Jesus gives us in these passages. I mean, there's a lot of other things, but this is the way uh, it was sort of ministering to me, especially as we get to the end of this passage. So um, let's read, and then we will go on into it. Um, So in uh, chapter 8, verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke, or literally the Greek is, and they went and wake him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Or very literally, it's three words, Lord, save, dying. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out 
What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled And going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, And behold, that's Capernaum, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, They were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to their to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worse and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. You may remember um, that after the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus, the, the conclusion there at the end of chapter seven is the people are amazed because he spoke as one that has authority. And then immediately he comes down the mountain, chapter eight, and the leper comes, heals the leper. The centurion comes, heals his servant with a word. He heals Peter's mother-in-law in his, in his house. Um, and then those first three, those first three miracles are summarized with two examples of disciples not to be like. We need whole life commitment discipleship. And this is what Matthew does. After the Sermon on the Mount, we see the authority of God's word. Now we see the authority of his works. And so authority is a huge theme through chapters 8 and 9. And what he does is he gives us nine miracle stories. That doesn't mean only nine miracles happen. You can argue that there are two additional miracles, up to 11. Um, however, there are nine miracle stories in which Matthew collects in groups of three. So there's three with a reflection on discipleship. Then there's three, which we just read, with a reflection on discipleship, the calling of Matthew. So we read the, the storm at the sea. We read uh, the demoniacs being uh, exercised. And we read the paralytic being healed. And that, like the first three, followed up with discipleship. That one's followed up with Matthew's discipleship and questions about how disciples handle food. And then next week, we'll see the next and last set of three, uh, the next three miracle stories with one more reflection on discipleship. So you see how Matthew's structured here. And his goal is to get us uh, to get us to follow. If you remember in chapter 8, verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And then what we just read in 8.23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So there's a huge discipleship theme through this in which Matthew wants us to be thinking about our discipleship with Christ. As we Are we just enamored with his power or do we want to follow in the footsteps of his power and even be radically altered and changed by his power? Do we want to have his power work through us as well? These are questions that disciples must ask. How truly are we disciples? So, um, let's, let's go through them. The first one, Jesus calms a storm. So we saw the theme of discipleship. Disciples get into the boat and follow him. So if Jesus gets in the boat, a disciple gets into the boat. That's what disciples do. They follow their master. They do everything their master does. They learn to eat like their master, to pray like their master, to um, sleep like their master, to, um, I've even heard one person explain it, like they will use the restroom like their master, you know? If he wipes with this hand, you wipe with that hand. And back then that was actually a big deal because with not as good a tissue paper, that's why your right hand was the hand of friendship, right? And your left hand, the hand of cursing. Because it, yeah, it wasn't always the most cleanly. My point, though, is like disciples were really in tune with we want to be like this teacher. And so he gets into the boat and they go with him. Um, and I love how you'll, you might have noticed Matthew keeps saying, and behold. It, something surprising is happening is what he does. He says it a lot throughout what we read. And I love the translation that some translations use like look. Look, a storm came. Or look, the people were murmuring. I just like it because it's like, it's more like punctuated. Like, now this. And behold, I think we've kind of gotten that heard so many times. Like, behold. I want to hold it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, but yeah, and look, 
there arose a storm. So this was a surprise. And that's actually things that would happen on the Sea of Galilee. Storms came quite surprisingly because of the way Galilee sits below the hills and it's below sea level and winds can come through quite rapidly. And, and when I was in Israel, I did actually witness how quickly a calm day went to just very, very choppy surf. That wasn't a storm that you would like be crying out like, save us, we're dying. But you could just see how easily over the course of lunch, a placid lake got very choppy. It felt ocean-like. Um, so that does happen. So look, a storm arose and that the boat was beginning to be swamped by waves. Um, now the boats, we always talk about like, these are experienced fishermen and they're terrified and like, what's like, this must be bad. One thing that we don't often talk about though, is that fishermen never went into the middle of the lake. That's not something they did. They always fished around the shores. So they're typically around shallow water. Going out into the middle, crossing straight across eastward like they're doing, uh, would have been, yeah, there are in open sea. And every Jew was terrified of open seas. Um, in fact, Psalm 107 is a beautiful psalm about... Um, just the ways that God delivers his pilgrims as they return home to Jerusalem. And one of them is about how they're on the seas and like the swells went as high as heaven and then the troughs went as low as hell. Like that's the way it describes it. It's just like, and they cried out in their despair. And after each of these episodes, which this is like the third or fourth, they all end with, let us give thanks to the Lord for his mercy for he, I can't remember how it goes, but it, they alter slightly. But yeah, give thanks to him who rescued us from the sea. And that is no doubt actually part of the point of this passage is that God is the one who rescues people from stormy seas. God, Psalm 107 says, God is the one who calmed that storm. And so disciples who are now experiencing Psalm 107, they're about to see Jesus get up and calm the storm. And now does it make sense why they're like, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? They see Psalm 107 happening. God has just calmed the storm. Wait, is what sort of man is he did what god does the psalms describe only god doing this they're amazed also the reason they're amazed is because as um john chrysostom points out in his homily on this um he points out that this is the miracle the first one in which they are recipients of the power of christ Everything else, they're seeing him do stuff to other people. But now they are in terror and now Christ's deliverance comes on their behalf. And this is when we really get to know God. And so one of the important themes of discipleship here is that we get into the boat with Jesus because he brings storms so that we learn to cry out to him in faith and we experience his power for real in our lives. Disciples are formed by direct relationship with Christ's authority. Not by talking about it, not by observing it, not by studying it, but by experiencing it. So, um, I love though how Matthew will sometimes use the present tense. A lot of English translations smooth it over because it's awkward and it, they, our translations don't want us always being confused about the text. They want to help us read the text and enjoy it. Um, but in the Greek, like we mentioned, verse 25 is they went and wake him. So Matthew's really pulling the audience into the moment at this point. They wake him. Like, you are there. Feel it. Feel their panic. See yourself waking him. Um, and then I love this, the, the way the Greek's so curt. Lord, save dying. You've been in these patterns before where it's just like, all you can do is get out that prayer. 
You know, like, there's nothing else. Lord, not even save me, just Lord, save! <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> and this is, uh, we're, he's, so even with just the way Matthew's writing this, you get the feeling of what these disciples are going through and how Jesus is crafting disciples. So you want to follow him? So one lesson about discipleship is you follow Jesus into storms. It's like, he's going tornado chasing, we're, we're on, we're doing this. Because, um, yeah, it seems scary, but he's going to do something there with it. Um, so that leads us right to verse 28. So they're crossing the sea from Capernaum. Uh, the other side would have been the gatherings. Um, we don't know if that's what he was aiming for. Perhaps either this storm throws them on a detour and they end up there, or this was Jesus's plan or both because Jesus planned to get there and the storm was just whipping around to get there. We don't know. But what's cool is that what happens with the demoniacs is um, he goes there literally to, to exercise those two demoniacs and their demons, and then they go right back to where they left. It was a long trip to, one, give the disciples their own experience of Christ's power in their lives, and two, uh, to rescue two people. Rescue two people. That was it. Bless you. Um, oh, by the way, I didn't say, um, when Jesus accuses them of having little faith, I mean, yeah, they're new disciples. Did you know I have little faith, too? Because my faith is always in progress of growing. And the way to grow faith is to go in these storms and to cry out, Lord, save dying. Every time we cry that out in our despair, our faith is growing a little bit. Because that's what faith is, is it's crying out in our despair. Now, um, so little faith is getting a little bit bigger. And it's going to keep getting bigger as we go. So um, when he gets to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes of verse 28, two demon-possessed men meet him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. You might have noticed, by the way, that in our reading of these stories, Matthew has very little detail in these stories. Mark, however, flushes in all these nice little things, like Jesus is asleep on a pillow at the stern. That's one thing Mark says. Mark describes that these men, I think it's Mark, um, he describes that they're, they were chained and, and that they, no one, you know, they would just rip the chains off and no one could keep them bound. All Matthew tells us is there's two demoniacs and they come bounding down and they're like, is it time? And Jesus doesn't even say anything. Doesn't say anything. He just says go. One word in this whole, he crosses the sea to say one word and goes back. This is the authority of Jesus that Matthew's highlighting. He is greater than the sea, which was a huge terror to Jews. And he's greater than the demons. He goes there to prove that to the disciples, to show them, to rescue these people. So they come out from the tombs, which by the way shows us that this is what, um, this is what demons do. They lead us to death. Now you and I might be like, come on, come on, man. No one's demon possessed in our country. Well, maybe not. I mean, there might be. But like, I don't know anyone demon-possessed in my life. This is such a, like, yeah, it happened then. But hold on a second. Hold on a second. Whether you accept this literally or not, it is important to note that ancient Christians described sins which possess us as demons. Now, that's not to say Christians were demon-possessed, but they were definitely affected by demonic activity in their sins. 
the Christians would call these passions when they start to control you. So demons and others kind of have your strings. They're, they're not like speaking through you and making you beat yourself up. Not like that kind of possession. But like they are pulling the strings and it's like they know how to make something shimmer and then like you're triggered and you're sinning. Like they, they have your number, if you will. Uh, they, would, they would reckon that those things happen to us through demonic activity. Uh, one of the things that we must be aware of is, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus loves me, saves me by grace, but hold on a minute. Continual activity in, in partnering with Satan in sin, what's going to happen in time is it's going to cause you to live in the graves. It's going to cause you to live in the tombs. It will kill you. Now, I don't know about your faith. Like, that's a whole nother theological debate about do you lose salvation or not? But let's just say it's not worth messing around with. Especially if we don't want to live in death when Christ is risen from the dead and is trampled down death by his death. So here, by the way, is a foreshadow that too. He's calling, these men are coming out of the tombs and they're going to live. So here they come. What have you to do with us, the Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Uh, it's likely that they're alluding to the judgment. Like they're going to be judged. Um, torment is... Um, I, I don't remember who said this. I, I want to say it was Jerome, or it might have been Augustine. But he said, uh, anywhere where Jesus is, the demons are tormented. It's like, they recognize their judge. Whether it's judgment time or not, they're in torment. Because like, ah, he's here. They think judgment has come. So they begin pleading. Notice, like, they ask him a question, and Jesus doesn't say anything. All we get from Matthew is there's some pigs over there. And then the demons beg, send us to those pigs. <laughs> like, like Jesus doesn't say anything like, oh, it's not time yet. And the demons start like, there's no discussion. Just the presence of Jesus alone is beginning to work exorcism is what you need to see. <laughs> He's there and the demons already want out. They are looking for an ejection plan. Ejection? Yeah, they want to eject. Uh, they want to just, yeah, they want to bail. They want out fast. He hasn't said a thing. The demons voluntarily leave the person. And then Jesus is like, sure, go. It's one word, go. Um, let's not underestimate, as one of these lessons, the power of bringing the presence of Christ anywhere you go. When you say your prayers at your house, don't underestimate the presence of Christ in that prayer and how it's affecting your neighborhood. When you go on a walk in your neighborhood, say, and do like some praying, don't underestimate the exorcism that may happen. The demons tremble before the presence of Christ. And the more we call upon his name, the more we, like, the, the more they, they, they have no room. Uh, imagine, and by the way, this is why some people think we don't see as much demonic activity in America as we see in other countries, is because we have so many churches in America. They don't have enough operating room. Their, their, their areas of working is so narrow. But, but the important thing for us to think about is don't underestimate you gathered on a Sunday night and we are saying prayers together, there is some trembling going on in the spiritual realm. And you don't know how that's affecting Twin Peaks. The fact that that a couple churches in Twin Peaks faithfully meet week after week after week after week. What happens if one of them shuts their doors? We sometimes just see this as so like, yeah, it's maintenance, or it's just like, we go, we don't, but don't forget the prayers of the people of God are doing warfare in the spiritual realm just reading scripture aloud can change a heart things don't always have to be fancy or creative or clever although we do like it when it is sometimes 
Um, okay, so they see this happen. The pigs fly off the hill. Uh, we see more of what demons want to do. They just want to seek, kill, and destroy, like heat-seeking missiles, right? And the pigs go down. And then what's interesting is in verse 34, Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, what's a little spooky is that that word begged is the same word that the demons used about let us go into the pigs. Mm. They begged Jesus, let us go, and now the city's coming out and using the same terminology that the demons are using. It even leads one to ask, is the city itself under dark powers? And this is why, Jesus, get out of here. You disrupt people's little idols. (laughs) You knock over an idol, demons are going to scram. And people are going to be upset. That's what happens. That's what happens. So um, they come back. The whole trip, oh, the whole trip was for those two people. And the rest of the city wasn't converted. Let's not be discouraged. If you set out to do something and only two people respond, apparently that was worth the trip for Jesus. It's not a failure that he didn't win the whole town. These were the two that he knew needed salvation. So let's, let's take heart. Let's not be discouraged. Heck, I mean, yeah, two of you show up. We're still going to, we're going to go through the liturgy and the prayers because the demons are real, but so is Christ and his authority is greater. So we march with him. Um, storm, the demoniacs, third miracle, chapter nine, verse one. Again, you might have noticed sparse on the details. No mention of a house. No mention of the friends lowering him from the roof. Matthew's just right at the power of Jesus, not the details. Mark likes to tell stories. Matthew likes to make disciples. So he's after actions and patterns. Mark's about flourishing, uh, flourishing? Uh, filling in the story with details and visuals. Um, so... Um, He crossed back over to his own city, Capernaum, from which they left. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, all the, even the ancient commentators, the new commentators, everyone points out. He's not looking at the paralytic and seeing his faith. He's looking at the friends who carry him to Jesus and sees their faith. And it's because of their faith, he looks at the paralytic. Disciples of Jesus, one of the things we are called to do is to carry people to Jesus. We carry them to Jesus. Now, you're not going to always get someone that's going to get a piggyback on you and come to church with you. I trust them even trying that, and people just, no, 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 that church is scary, it's too Christian. Um, but you, you can do, every single person can carry people to Jesus in prayer. It's called intercession, and disciples intercede for people. This is what we do. And if we don't, we are failing to do what these people are doing. And we're failing to let others be healed by Jesus. Jesus looks at the intercessor's faith, and sometimes he's moved by the faith of the prayer, regardless of how out there Susie or Sally is that we're praying for. Don't underestimate your prayers for people. Keep bringing people to Jesus. Bring them over and over and over and don't get tired of that. We, we do that every week here, right? We have time of intercessory prayer. Don't get tired of naming people, of bringing them to him. Yeah, you might do that in your own prayer time, but you know what? Bring, him to Je- bring them to Jesus in the presence of all of us. Then, it, you, you know how clumsy it is to carry that cot, just you? 
on the corner. Maybe your spouse has got the other one, but it's like, ah, we got to drag you. Sorry, Bill. Um, no, the more people carrying this cot, the more easily it is to bring them to Jesus. This is what intercessory prayer is meant to be. And so Jesus looks at him and says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And there the whole story turns. At first, it seems like it's just, oh, here's another miracle. Instead, Jesus does not say, he does not say, son, get up. Your paralysis is healed. The point of this story is not that Jesus has authority over paralysis. We've already seen he had authority over leprosy and the centurion servant who's paralyzed and and Peter's mother-in-law's fever. He has authority over that stuff. We know that. The point is that Jesus has authority over sin. That's the point of the story. And that's where the story is going to take its turn. So the next word is what? Look or and behold. Uh-oh, he said something wrong. Look, there's a, there's a reaction. And this, by the way, is our first case of opposition to Jesus. So far, it's authority, it's power, it's unchallenged. People are in awe. Now people are going to stand up. You're going too far. So look, some of the scribes said to themselves, the scribes are Bible scholars, they're seminary students or professors. They're, they're me. <laughs> they're also you because you guys are good Bible students and you're at a, you know, you're at a Bible teaching church. So, um, the, this is where we're starting to see the window. We never let scripture become the obsession Scripture is a window to Christ. We cannot forget that. And it's the hardest thing when you're in school. I'm saying this experientially in seminary. It can be so easy to just get into, okay, we got to keep dissecting all these nuances. And they get super technical to the point you're like, you're rolling your eyes in the back of your head and saying, this isn't going to change anyone's life. Uh, and they train you and they beat into your head, just like examine the text. Like it's a little specimen to dissect. And um, you can easily forget it's a window. Like, enough with polishing the glass. Let's now step back and look through it, right? Um, the, the glass must be clean. Don't knock study. But remember this to look through it. So the scribes don't look through the glass. That's the problem. And so they now speak up. This man is blaspheming. Now, how is he blaspheming? Your sins are forgiven. He didn't say anything about God. He didn't say, God is dumb. Lord, I'm not really blaspheming. Don't strike me. Um, he, they're not saying anything like that, right? Like, how is this blasphemy? Well, um, because they understand as they whisper among themselves. Um, oh, no, that's in one of the other gospels. Sorry. Um, they understand that only God can forgive sins. So if your sins are against God, only God can forgive them, right? I can't forgive your sins against God. You did that with God. So that's one way he's blaspheming, but there's another way. And this one is very crucial and striking. Is that um, sins are forgiven by God and not just anywhere. Do you remember in Israel? You don't just sit in your house and say, God, forgive me. They're forgiven by God at the temple with a sacrifice. That's where you're forgiven. Jesus is breaking all kinds of rules right now. It's not just breaking rules, but he's making an audacious claim, an audacious claim that I think the scribes understand very clearly what he's doing. He is the temple. God is here and he is the temple and your sins are forgiven 
now. In fact, actually, the Greek is not your sins are forgiven. It's your sins are being forgiven. As if right here on the spot, you have been cleansed. He's not just pronouncing, this is what we do in church, right? When we, we haven't confessed our sins, we've been in a season of celebration. But when we confess our sins again, I will say, right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And then we light the candle to remember our forgiveness, right? Like we proclaim you have been forgiven, but I can't say you are being forgiven. I don't have the authority to do that. That's what Jesus is saying. And they understand the ramifications. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts in verse 4, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier to say? Oh, your sins are forgiven every day. Because you can't prove that. Now, if I say, you know, Addy, fly around the room. I'm going to look like an idiot because he's not going to fly around the room. (laughs) What if I say, Addy, think of a pink elephant. We can't prove it. Can't disprove it. So that's what he's saying. It's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven. But so that you can know that I really did forgive his sins, I'm going to say the harder thing. Rise and take up your bed and walk. And he does. And that's why the people are stoked out of their minds. Because, yeah, we've seen him do miracles. But now he proved that he has divine temple authority to, in the moment, on the spot, purge and cleanse sins. That must have sent shivers and chills up everyone's spine. That's why they are afraid and glorify God in verse 7, who had given such authority to men. Jesus, of course, being referred to as the man there. So we've seen the three miracles. Jesus' authority is over the sea. It's over the demons. It's over sins. These are three things that no human has ever been able to dominate or master. Jesus masters them with an economy of words. Now, Matthew has the pause for reflection. Are you going to follow him now? Are you ready to follow him? So we look at Matthew himself. What's cool is as we saw this in verse 9, uh, he, there's a man named Matthew at the tax booth, and Jesus said, come follow me. Um, Matthew inserts his conversion story right in the smack dab middle of a series of miracle stories. Mm-hmm. Isn't that so cool? Like, this is how Matthew sees his own conversion. So... This is why I say you could even number an extra miracle in here. Matthew sees his conversion as a miracle. Um, And this is important to understand as we go forward. We must reflect with awe upon what God has done for us. Every day. It saves us from despair. It saves us from depression and greediness and entitlement. If every day I remember... If I wasn't rescued from my sin, where would I be right now? Terrifying. There's one prayer from St. Basil the Great, which I love and incorporate um, almost daily, um, where it says, it's so hard to recall things when you're not in the flow, isn't it? Um, uh, I thank you, most holy Trinity, for your loving kindness and patience. For you are not angry with me, even though I'm lazy and full of sin, and you've not destroyed me for the wrongs which I have done, but you have shown unchanging love for me. And when I was bowed low in dark despair, you raised me up to sing the morning hymn and to glorify your lordship. Whoa. Like that in just some just, just nails. Remember where you were. I was in dark despair, but he's raised me up. And so what I do there is I then stop and give thanks for specific things. And like prime of that is just remembering, man, 
yeah, I'm not in hell right now. I'm not literally a slave to sins right now. All is good in the world of Brandon. It's helped me out of despair a few times. Um, where was it? Oh, Matthew seeing his conversion as a miracle. So then he hosts a party. Um, Luke indicates that this is in Matthew's own house when Matthew doesn't say it. But it's in Matthew's house. Uh, we see the tax collectors and sinners coming. Um, notice that, um, yeah, then the Pharisees see this. The Pharisees are, well, they're conservatives. They're very serious. Um, they take themselves too seriously. And these are, these are what you would call professional window critics. Like this, they go around and they're like, the window's not clean. Dude, we gotta clean this window. And they're like, good. Oh, but the corner. Or, oh, there's a, there's a streak there from your squeegee. Like that's the Pharisee. And this is what they're doing. Matthew's converted. Matthew is no longer a tax collector and he's eating with Jesus. And there's all these people eating with Jesus and the Pharisees. All they can see is, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, this isn't clean. This isn't pure. So, like, we got to clean this window, guys. Come on, get with it. Um, and then Jesus, of course, tells us to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So, um, yeah, see through the window, guys. Go and learn what this means. Go back to the Bible and see what it's saying. Look through it. God is after the heart of mercy, not we do everything right. So... That then triggers more window critics. Like, yeah, wait a minute. There's something really bad here. So the, the, the disciples of John come in and begin this debate about fasting. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So um, we know as a fact that the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. It was a bi-weekly regular fast. Um, or the Jews, I just said the Pharisees, uh, the Jews in general, but the Pharisees, of course, making sure you, you kept your fast, Hans, because we got to keep the window clean. Um, but we also know that they had four periods within the year of fasting. There are four months of fasting. And you get this from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 18, um, which, is, which says this. This is Zechariah 8, 18. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of, Is- of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So what Zechariah is doing is he's, he's, kept, he's picking up on these new fasts the Jews have developed. Four times a year they were fasting for the temple because the temple is destroyed. Zechariah says, there's going to be a day when those four months are going to be feasts, celebrations. Well, um, it's either a Monday or a Thursday and Jesus is feasting and they're like, oh, you can't do that. It's Monday, it's Thursday. Or it's one of the months where they mourn the destruction of the temple. And like, oh, don't you know what month it is? It's the 10th month. You can't be doing this. We're mourning the loss of the temple. And you know what Jesus is doing? It's like, no, we're not. The temple's here. Because what was the temple about? The temple is about sinners eating with God. You bring the sacrifice, he eats it in the smoke, you eat it off the altar. These sinners and tax collectors are eating with God. Like, we're not mourning the temple anymore. It's a season of feasting celebration. The bridegroom is here. You don't go to a wedding and go, uh, I, I'm not happy about your marriage, I won't eat. 
Like, you should have said something way before that. Sorry. Um, that's why it's always funny. Does anyone object? It's like, it's a little late. Right? <laughs> like, we could have said this a while ago. But, um, but notice what Jesus does say. The bridegroom will leave, then they will fast. So in the presence of Jesus, they're feasting. But in the absence of Jesus, we are fasting. And it's appropriate for that to be the case. Why? Because we're awaiting his return. We're eager to look for him to come back. You know what is inappropriate? Is if your bridegroom leaves you and you just throw parties and feasts. Good riddance! Let's party! That's inappropriate. And this is why the church has traditionally fasted. Um, like the Jews, twice a week. Wednesdays and Fridays, because you can't do the same days the Jews are doing, because it's got to be a new wineskin, not an old wineskin, which I think is literally their thinking there with that. Um, <laughs> Wednesdays and Fridays because of Jesus' betrayal and death, um, but then also seasons through the year. Why? It's not that we're against feasting. We love feasting, but it's inappropriate to live a life of feasting. Always feasting leads to numbness. But it's also inappropriate to always fast. Always fasting leads to glumness. You're either going to be numb or glum. You can't do all of it. We're not going to be these like crucified ascetics who are just carrying cactus on our feet all the time. Walking cactus? I don't know. I'm just saying things as the images come. Like all glum. Love Jesus. He gives you joy, man. That's not good. But nor are we just sitting there and pounding out steaks and eating and being merry and all that like every day of our lives. That's inappropriate. We're in a time of mourning because the world is not right. Feasting is for when the world is made right. So the church has a balance, and we're called to a balance. We're called to observe uh, these things. But, but here's, the, here's what Jesus is pointing out. We do not fast as a tradition and examine the fast. That's what the disciples of John are doing. They're doing it wrong. They're not fasting right. We we're telling you, you got to clean the window here. No, no. Our window says fast because it helps us enter into the kingdom of God and to see Christ more clearly and to become more like him. That's why we fast. But the minute we start telling Tyler that he can't have his, whatever he's eating on Friday, like Tyler, that's wrong, dude. You're not allowed to do that. I've become a window washer. Right? That's not our job. Our tradition is to fast. But it's becoming window critic if I'm telling you how to fast. That's the difference. We want to look through the window. We find what works for us. Um, okay, so to close, um, he's talking about new wine must be in new wineskins. Um, the garment's the same illustration. Um, the old can't just be put in... Um, sorry, the new can't just be put into something old. That's why there must be change. The disciples must relearn. There's a lot we have to unlearn as we follow Jesus. Wine skins are animal skins. It's like, it's leather. And you would put, so they would stomp the grapes, juice would come out, they'd collect it in jars, and then it would sit there in these vats. That's what you call them, they're vats, and they're bigger than jars. They would sit there and they would ferment. And, and the all the, you know, grains and the, the, 
the bad stuff. They call them lees. I don't know if anyone knows what that is, but like, yeah, all that sediment, it just settles to the bottom in this time. And then after that period, you would then pour it into a wine skin and all that sediment's at the bottom. So you're not going to get it in the wine skin. And so you pour that into the wine skin and then you close it up and it's going to go through its second fermentation. And if you don't have fermentation works, it's like basically eating sugar, like these little, um, bacteria eats sugar and then it basically, has indigestion, you know, it's coming out. Um, so that brings air and gas into it. So fermentation brings expansion and gas into the wineskin. And so it begins to expand. Well, all well and good when it's new leather, but if it's old leather, then it's already been stretched. So when that begins to happen, the leather is going to burst and you're going to lose the wine. Jesus is calling disciples to a new way of living. Stop the window washing that we have going on around in our culture and let Christ clean the window and look through it. Tradition's great. Go with your tradition. Be a true Christian. But don't get into window critic critiquing. We're not window snobs. It serves a purpose. And so, um, yes, disciples do what Jesus says. But let people follow Jesus as they're led to follow Jesus, too. And that's, I think, a theology on how to window wash. We allow the authority of Jesus to be our power, not our great ability to scrub things clean. Um, because if we be, if we don't learn how to look through the window clearly and correctly, we're going to become critical of people who are trying to reach out to hurting people. Because wait, you can't, you can't, you're, you're, you're you can't hang out with sinners. Uh, no, you can, because the thing is, if Christ is dwelling in me and I'm being cleansed by him, he is, I am in the presence of God. I am a temple. I am, I am in his presence and I can go into unclean places and make them clean. We have the authority of Christ with us and we should be able to reach out like Matthew does to other people. It's not all about just being pure and rubbing our windows clean and clean and clean. Yes, they need to be clean, but look through it and see what Jesus is about. It's a much bigger life out there if we're willing to do that. But you need the window or you're going to fall out. You need the window or you're going to become a sinner when you're with sinners. You need the tradition. You need that structure. You need that in your life. Just don't overfixate on it. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. For you are good and you love mankind. Amen.